Volume. Welcome to the final and fourth episode of Access, focusing on what is turning out to be a race to find a vaccine for COVID-19, but sadly not necessarily meaning that it will then be available to everyone who needs it at affordable levels. My name is Fatima Hassan. Access is a podcast of the Health Justice Initiative in partnership with Volume. This show aims to unpack access to healthcare in the context of COVID-19, and we do this by looking at global and local developments in the sector. In today's episode, we discuss the global and local developments, trials, policies and politics fueling what is being referred to as the COVID-19 vaccine wars or even vaccine nationalism. Our special guests are Dr. Linda Gale Becker, a Health Justice Initiative Reference Group Advisory Member and well-known and award-winning researcher, clinician, and public health advocate in the fields of HIV and TB, who fought with and alongside many of us in the HIV-AIDS medicine access movement. She's also the Chief Operating Officer of the Desmond Tutu HIV Foundation. Also with us is Preeti Krishtel, a co-founder and co-director of IMAC, and a lawyer and medicine access activist. Preeti is a campaigner for justice, a community organizer, and a relentless advocate for patients based in the U.S. Safura Abdul Karim is a public health lawyer and senior researcher at Priceless SA, as well as an Aspen New Voices 2020 fellow. And finally, we have with us well-known political analyst and commentator, Lokona Mguni, a PhD intern researcher at the Maurice Webb Race Relations Unit at the University of KwaZulu-Natal. Welcome. Linda, uh, it's great to have you on the show. Why don't you take us through some of your reflections on where we are in relation to the pandemic and also the global status of vaccine research, uh, including in South Africa and, and some of the issues that you would like to highlight and some of your own concerns and hopes? I guess the different thing here is that COVID is a worldwide risk. It's a, it's a pandemic, not to say HIV was not. But really, when it first started out, it, it was much more of a risk for largely more affluent men who have sex with men. Um, and then, you know, the forgotten global south um, who basically were left to fend for themselves. And, and we saw pharma cashing in early, really expensive drugs that, um, as we all know, you know, took a long time to get the world attention that whilst people were getting access to those drugs and living long, people in the South were dying in their droves. Um, and, and that was because they couldn't afford the 3,000 odd rand per month that it costs to put hands on those life-saving drugs. You know, is it different now that we have a pandemic that is in everybody's face, everybody's talking about it, and everybody's talking access? I would hope so. Also, we now have a world where the agencies are perhaps a lot more attuned to this sort of thing. So, you know, we have a Gavi and we have UNAIDS and we have the World Health Organization, all of whom are perhaps a little more astute about all of that. I, I really worry about how we're going to make sufficient 
doses of these vaccines to really get to everybody and worry that again the global south is going to be far down in the list of priorities. You observing sort of a number of uh, potential vaccine candidates being spoken about, some clinical trials, one in South Africa. I mean, what, what's your sense of what is happening globally in terms of the race for a vaccine? First of all, unprecedented to have this number of R&D, you know, efforts going on around the world. So just an unprecedented number of, of developers have stepped forward. If we could have a fraction of this in HIV, we'd be a hell of a lot better off than we are. So, you know, the race, as you put it, is absolutely on and the field is packed. So that is much better than perhaps what, what you know, we faced in other diseases, uh, particularly those that target Africa most. Um, the second component to that is the huge urgency, the need to get it out. Uh, again, is a it's great on the one hand because definitely the speed at which this is happening is unprecedented. There is, uh, again, a slight worry about, you know, are we almost moving too fast? We're not stopping, we're not thinking. Unlike where if we'd been doing this in a somewhat more systematic way, which would have been slower, uh, you may not have, you know, had so many doing a similar kind of antigen race. Now, obviously, there's good rationale for that, but say we're wrong, or say there isn't durability, or there's escape from that antigen, then we will have lost some time. But I totally understand what the mindset is to go the way people have gone is they're saying one winning horse is not going to be able to manufacture sufficient doses for everybody around the world. So we need a number of, of stakes in the game, a number of players. So Preeti, I mean, if we turn to you, you know, Linda's painted a picture of uh, unprecedented need, unprecedented investment, uh, the urgency and the scale of, you know, the search for a vaccine. And has also spoken, I think, indirectly about how does the whole world get access to a vaccine if one or two or few of them are actually successful. I mean, take us through, you know, some of the concerns you have, but also some of the work you've done around, you know, groundbreaking work around access to HIV medication, cancer, TB. What, what are the global barriers that would make it difficult for South Africans, particularly poor South Africans, to be able to access a vaccine should they be a successful candidate? For me, the primary concern is that we're definitely seeing a market-based approach play out for global vaccines development and access right now. In this system that we have right now, these decisions about development and access are being left entirely to the private market how much to produce, who has access to the technology, which markets they're selling in already. And these decisions are being made by industry executives. They're not really being made by policymakers or public health officials. They're being treated as commodities. And so what happens when we leave these decisions to the private market is that we have this false sense that the pie is finite. And so we've bought into this idea that in high income countries, you know, as they're entering into these advanced purchase agreements, that people need to take care of their own countries first. And 
what's happened is that we, you know, I say this as an American, we've created and exported this very secretive and monopolistic system of medicines. You know, we've bought into this idea that we have to take care of ourselves first, and then that literally creates a hierarchy on people's lives. And I think this is an inevitability of the system we have right now. But if we were to choose a different future, then we could reimagine the medicines market right now. So it's not controlled by single players who get large amounts of government funding to develop these vaccines, but then get to make all the decisions on how it plays out for people's lives. Um, and one of the main barriers with this right now is, of course, the fact that we're not seeing the full manufacturing capacity of the world unlocked. I think about this as there are two major challenges right now, right? There are the scientific challenges and then there are the man-made challenges. The scientific challenges are everything from actual vaccines development to thinking about, well, how are we going to heat stabilize these vaccines so they can travel far and wide and reach people in all kinds of settings, you know, rural places without um, the technology to store the vaccines, things like that. And then, of course, there are the man-made challenges ownership rights, either through intellectual property or the technology and know-how that could be transferred, but it's up to the discretion of the company that's originally um, creating the vaccine. And then, of course, the other man-made barrier is that we have not, as a global society, decided to fully invest in the manufacturing capacity um, in different countries and regions. In a nutshell, I just don't buy into this idea that the pie is finite. The pie is always bigger, but we have to get rid of the scarcity mentality that the current market-based approach uh, pushes us to employ. In terms of our work, uh, we work on the patent system, as you know. Uh, we've worked historically on HIV, hepatitis C, other vaccines. And what we've seen over time is that patents play a key role um, as a barrier to access. Now, in the context of treatments, what we've seen with HIV and hepatitis C is certainly playing out again with COVID. You know, by the time we started to scale global treatment, we started to see in South Africa and in India, in Brazil and other countries where patents were going to be a barrier. And my main concern right now is that we're going to see a lot of focus from industry on the low-income countries or the poorest countries. And what we learned from HIV and again with Hep C is that middle-income countries are often left behind. So certainly, I mean, a key obstacle would be the ability of the Global South to manufacture a vaccine that is regarded as successful uh, and, you know, what people call building local manufacturing capacity. But you... Uh, from a country where your political administration has a very, you know, bizarre, I would say, response to COVID, and at the same time is engaging in what people are calling vaccine nationalism. Could you maybe just take our listeners through the concept of vaccine nationalism and what that means in relation uh, both to the, U to the U.S. and also to the U.K.? When we talk about vaccine nationalism, we're talking about the hoarding by wealthier countries. Rather than participating in international agreements or committing to 
a um, an approach where we understand that the global good and caring for the world citizens is paramount to our ability, you know, as the earth to curb this pandemic. Many of the highest income countries um, are focused on ensuring that their populations are treated first. Um, and so this is, you know, comes at a time when we need to be moving to rapidly inoculate the whole world against the virus. But we see that the governments of the United States and the UK and other key countries are entering into these largely secretive, and I say secretive because we don't know who's in, who's out, what the terms are in many of these agreements um, with manufacturers to stock up on future vaccines. And so we saw this most recently with the treatment, uh, remdesivir by Gilead scientists, and it comes at the direct expense of the poorest countries. I also think that it's a faulty framework. Because again, it's we're even the term vaccine nationalism. Now I've been reflecting on this. We are perpetuating this narrative that there's only a certain amount of vaccine to go around, and it's just not true. The more we calcify this narrative that there's only a certain amount of vaccine once they get developed, and therefore we are going to have to fight, it makes I think our argument as activists harder. Those of us who live in high-income countries, what we need to be doing is actually pressuring our governments to make sure that manufacturing capacity is unlocked in other countries, that we are participating in global efforts to expand that manufacturing capacity, to utilize it, to incentivize or even compel our manufacturers to share technology, to share know-how, to share the information that is locked up in our intellectual property rights. And by doing that, we're going to be able to scale up treatment, but definitely also vaccines even more. Safura, you know, Preeti and Linda have made out a case for why in this unprecedented time we really need to have a speedy but a safe and also equitable access to a vaccine. Um, and Preeti has also talked about the patent barriers, intellectual property barriers, geopolitical challenges in trying to ensure equitable access. Just this week, you've written in The Lancet uh, about those very issues, but also about the notion of equitable access, not just for people living in South Africa, but also for, you know, other countries in Africa, for the global South. I mean, what are your, you know, reflections? I've been writing a little bit about um, this idea of what domestic legal systems can do to help access in, in globally. Because I think, you know, a lot of the challenges that Preeti has outlined, they're not quick things to fix at a global level. Um, you know, and, and what's even more concerning, I think what's different about vaccines is vaccines weren't really at the forefront of the affordable medicines debate when reform was coming um, through things like the Doha Declaration that created um, a mechanism and several different mechanisms to make vaccines affordable um, in low and middle income countries and kind of limit the power of patent protections in those countries. And so, you know, I think the the challenge is how do we, and it's, it's a lot of the same things that Preeti has just discussed, which is how do we get access to vaccines in a system that just isn't 
designed to make access equitable. And I think patent laws are, are one of the big issues, but there's other really big issues that need to be tackled. Things like how do you start administering you know, vaccines at scale in countries that are not used to doing that? And how do you enable the production of generics when um, so much of the technical know-how is locked away and not even available through things like um, patent applications? And I think that is really the, the next challenge for us as, um, as affordable medicines and health technologies advocates is how do we reshape our systems to remove the barriers that didn't exist, you know, some of the practical and, and, and manufacturing and production barriers that didn't exist in the case of manufacturing generic medicines? And how do we translate that across to, to vaccines? And I I don't have all the answers, um, unfortunately. I think, um, you know, the vaccine nationalism that Preeti talked about is such a big issue because it really will define how people get access. And because we don't have a lot of manufacturing capacity in low and middle income countries, you know, that means like, A, there's not a lot of vaccine to go around, but it also means that the vaccine that is available is going to be limited to places that have this very sophisticated manufacturing capacity. And you can't build um, vaccine manufacturing capacity overnight. Um, and so I think, you know, these reforms around, you know, creating greater transparency in um, contracts between states, in making the technical know-how available through mechanisms like CTAP, and really thinking about how we bring things like the Doha Declaration, which eased um, the intellectual property predictions for medicines, how do we bring those into the vaccine space? Those are the challenges, I think, for, for advocates and lawyers in the next 12 months as the scientists start working on, on developing a, an effective vaccine. In your Lancet piece, you've made reference to Gavi and other initiatives that are trying to ensure that there will be equitable access across the global south as well as the global north. I mean, take us through some of your critiques or some of your concerns around some of these initiatives. You know, there has been a lot of discussion about using um, Gavi and their um, sort of public-private partnership of, of advanced market commitments. That is where, um, you know, they sort of agree to purchase a large amount of vaccine doses and then they sell it at a cheaper price to low and middle income countries. So the thing I think about Gavi is two things. The one is they set a particular agenda. They have the resource and political will to buy certain kinds of vaccines and they have the resource to buy a particular amount of that vaccine. And I think the problem there comes in with a lot of the countries that they support um, are low-income countries that can't afford to purchase va vaccines. So the one concern I had about um, using measures like Gavi is, are we going to compromise other kinds of vaccine access for COVID access? So, you know, they're providing measles va vaccinations, for example, in Zambia. And how do you ensure that that gets preserved? And then the separate concern, which I think is, is a bigger concern, is Gavi doesn't cover everyone. Um, Gavi is, you know, a lot of countries are Gavi graduate countries like South Africa, and we don't have the bargaining power individually to negotiate low prices for vaccines. We could if we pulled together with 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 a mechanism like Gavi, but they may not be open um, to 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 entering into those kinds of agreements with Gavi graduate countries who are not sort of the most vulnerable countries. And so you have this category of missing countries, um, and and 
and that and that's sort of one of the barriers. The Gabby model is a potential way to facilitate access, but again, it's very reliant on a philanthropy. It's very reliant on on kind of what they prioritize. And so there is also a question about sustainability. Once that philanthropy is interested in COVID wanes, how do you create sustainable access? How do you undo kind of these systemic barriers to access as opposed to just having this be very COVID specific? So there's a lot of local excitement that the South African president, Thoreau Ramaphosa, has signed on to what's called the people's vaccine, which is sort of a demand that the vaccine should be available to all people in the world. Uh, And locally, South Africa is participating in the solidarity trial with the Fitz University and Oxford University, the MRC. What are your reflections on um, what South Africa could still do in terms of supporting Um, you know, both the search for a vaccine in the rest of the continent and also then making it available uh, on an equitable basis to the rest of the continent? I think um, with regard to the people's vaccine, I think it's a very um, admirable and laudable um, campaign. And it's, it's incredible that they've been able to get commitments from um you know various leaders i think the thing that concerns me the most about the people's um covid vaccine and and who signed on to it is 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 the same criticism that's leveled at things like ctap which is these things are entirely voluntary and the governments that really matter and the stakeholders that control the actual vaccine supply don't sign on to these agreements and they don't sign on and pledge to 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 um you know commit to to making these things equitable so it's you know it's great if if you know the president of chile or ecuador and the president of south africa introduce a whole lot of measures and they pledge to make the vaccine accessible but if they aren't the ones who control the supply and they aren't the ones that are manufacturing it then the commitment rings a bit hollow um i think what was nice about the call is it's not just about making a vaccine accessible it is really about building infrastructure and creating kind of addressing some of the more systemic issues um that hinder vaccine access so in that sense i think it's it's wonderful but i wish there there was a way to kind of leverage for example the who's um treaty making powers to translate some of these voluntary commitments into actual binding laws or binding agreements that would really see these ideas translated into concrete access linda gale south africa is participating in a vaccine trial which is being led by AstraZeneca, the Oxford University Group, the Medical Research Council and others. Could you maybe take us through that vaccine trial? Yeah, I mean, the the VITS trial is, it's a phase two, um, you know, and as you've already alluded to, Fatima, we need to watch where Oxford will go in terms of really moving this forward. Um, so what I would say is South Africa certainly has a role to play in in the downstream vaccine development arena. You know, we we have a significant epidemic. Um, We have the infrastructure. We are internationally adept at conducting clinical trials for licensure purposes. So I have no doubt that we have a role to play. And as Safura has has mentioned, I haven't seen the most recent list of who signed on to the people's vaccine, but I'd be really concerned if it's all the countries that aren't actually manufacturing or, or, or developing, you know, the intellectual property around making these vaccines, because then I feel like we're all talking to ourselves here. 
um, and we have these really laudable ideas, but without the actual products, <laughs> you know, those the, those are incredibly uh, non-starting. Priti, um, Linda's mentioned something around significant investment. And there's a call by US activists or activists in the global north that say that actually that investment comes from public money. It comes from taxpayers in the US and in other countries. And, you know, that's linked to something called Free the Vaccine and that initiative. I mean, could you just take us through some of the some of the more recent issues around the outrage that is growing in the US around the significant amounts of public investment in various vaccine trials, products, treatment options without necessarily providing uh, you know, correlation in terms of public access. Conversation in the US is basically that taxpayers are bankrolling the search for a vaccine. Certainly, industry is putting in dollars of its own, but there are significant investments being made by the government uh, through BARDA, which is the agent, the office that's part of HHS uh, that oversees these investments. Now, I just heard from Public Citizen this morning that's doing a lot of the work tracking this investment. And they said, as of right now, uh, you can look at the total amount invested as actually being close to $8.5 billion for the vaccine. And that's not counting the $3 billion that they noted is coming from the NIH for treatment and vaccines. And so it's a lot of money. I think why the public is frustrated and advocates are really leading the charge on this is because there's almost no transparency about what's in those deals. And they're are not a lot of conditions being put on those dollars. And where we do have some information available uh, about what has been secured on behalf of the American public, advocates are also really pressing forward to say, but that's not enough. We need to understand what the commitments are being made to ensuring global access. The Free the Vaccine campaign is doing incredible work to start to grow the advocacy base for these demands. Uh, it was started by Universities Allied for Essential Medicines and the Center for Creative Activism. And these two groups are bringing artists and activists together to really start to say, you know, if there's public funding involved, then the public should be the primary beneficiary of not just the product itself without leaving it up to the free market, but also really all of these things that Sephora has named as being essential to ensuring global scale up. So, Lakuna, I mean, let's turn to you. You know, Preeti's talked about universities in the U.S. Um, being used as part of the infrastructure for clinical research. In South Africa, the, the vaccine trial has started at Wits University. The collaborators are the Medical Research Council, as well as um, the Oxford University. I mean, take us through some of the concerns or issues that you may have, having heard, you know, Linda Gale and Sephora and Preeti talk about issues around systemic power, market power, transparency, equity. So I, I just wanted to start off with the geopolitical space and the fact that the United States uh, pulled out of the World Health Organization right in the middle of the pandemic. And that, of course, creates a, a, a lack of momentum in the development around uh, countries coming together for a people's vaccine. 
Because what it does mean is that if something were to come out of uh, the U.S. trials that are also uh, being undertaken on a vaccine, is that the U.S. will literally block the entire world uh, insofar as benefiting. For me, that one incident was quite clear to say then the allies of the U.S. must also make a decision on how much they want to participate um, in this people's vaccine. And one of the things I've noted is how a country like France, for me, has come out as one of the biggest betters for the WHO during this pandemic, even though they might not be blowing their horn about it a lot, uh, but they don't have the geopolitical influence and the power that a US and the United Kingdom possess. And we really, in that front, are at the mercy of those two countries from a point of sharing, particularly uh, with the global south, without them necessarily needing to benefit. But of course, even if we, we, we were to say the U.S. was part of a people's vaccine, what is still uh, imperative are the resources. Where is the money going to come from? Because everybody is making a plea for resources. If you're looking at the Secretary General of the United Nations, he's making a plea uh, for the global south to be helped by wealthier nations, particularly for their socioeconomic responses. Uh, we've got a problem of health systems as well that need uh, beefing up and serious responses. And therefore, there is a lot of scrambling for resources, and resources are finite. And it's not clear exactly how we are going to have a spread of these resources attending to all these areas of need, so vaccine, health systems, um, research and development as well, um, which is where I think the universities come in. I, I think it's positive that this university here uh, has has latched on and is a partner uh, through the Medical Research uh, Council on the Oxford vaccine. But it also tells us, um, I think, as South Africa, about the importance of investing um, in research, uh, even during times of normalcy when there is no crisis, so that when crisis comes, uh, your systems are there, you have some experts with a developed know-how who are also quick to the buzzer in terms of uh, latching on to new research and trying to solve immediate crisis. And that's where I think we will need a greater conversation because I do know, uh, even if you look at government budgeting, even if you look at private sector budgeting, budgeting for research and development has been quite in the decline. And in some instances, there actually has been no budgeting for research and development. Um, it's interesting that you bring the dynamic of BRICS because BRICS has postured itself as some alternative uh, to the um, West and, and the developments in the West. But I think that just the responses to COVID-19 have actually shown how uh, there isn't a clear coordination within BRICS. China has given some, uh, you know, cooperation in terms of lessons learned with our health ministry in South Africa. Uh, Russia has had its own response, but we actually haven't even seen one virtual BRICS engagement. We've seen the African Union meeting numerous times to try and respond to the pandemic. We have seen attempts by the United Nations. We've seen uh, the annual uh, World Health Organization Assembly um, meeting, but in terms of BRICS, we actually haven't seen a serious political engagement, uh, engagement amongst the head of states. And that tells me that, in fact, there is a bit of weakening of the BRICS. Uh, besides just the new uh, development bank, uh, there doesn't seem to be other work that is happening. So it's, it's as if 
Now it's about the money. And again, there, of course, we know that the biggest beneficiary of that arrangement with the new development bank is in actual fact China. And they are more than happy to see other countries taking up those loans from the new development bank and, and, and then hoping that in some way or the other, they are going to be part of resuscitating the economies of the global south, particularly because they were hit first by the pandemic and they were the first to go back to production. And therefore, the world is going to look to them for supplies and many other things. You know, Linda and Preeti and Safura have all talked about political power and political will, and, and Linda has reflected on how with COVID it seems to be different to the early years of, of South Africa's response on HIV AIDS, and there seems to be a speed to the response, and it's quite unprecedented. But in 120-odd days of lockdown, we've never heard the president once say that uh, South Africa will make use of flexibilities available to it to break patterns or that it will demand that pharmaceutical companies lower their prices and allow other people to manufacture the same product. I mean, you're a, you're a well-known political analyst in South Africa and you understand the way in which the ANC works, the ruling parties. So take us through what you think are some of, you know, the potential barriers we're going to face down the line because of the relationship between big business and and government, which really in effect is the ANC? Over the years, what has happened is that the ANC has become extremely co-opted by big business. And some of the people within the ANC have become proxies of big business. And that's because of the distorted nature in which the organization implemented then black economic empowerment and subsequent um, the broad-based black economic empowerment policy, which made sure that uh, the well-known politicians within the party would become either uh, members of, of boards in certain big companies um, or in some instances um, they would even become shareholders, which of course compromised uh, the manner in which they could advocate for the state to be vigilant in terms of uh, being a guardian on the business practice of, of, of big business. What we have seen, though, curiously, uh, as the lockdown started, uh, one or two big farmers um, in our country were very close near to the Minister of Health, making some donation here and there and, and promises. But, you know, those were all charitable exercises and we do know that in a time like this we need much more uh, structural promises um, such as uh, around the questions of patents around the questions of production and and, and scaling up and availability pricing issues um, of the vaccine uh, how do you ensure that you price in a way uh, that doesn't lock out uh, the, the the public the public the public sector of our health system, or if it is not locked out, it is not so exorbitantly priced that government cannot afford it uh, in, to be able to roll it out in, in, in Marseille. And I think uh, for me, we we do have a problem. And um, in one instance, I've called that we need to break up the elites in our country. And I think there has to be some concerted uh, action where we advocate and put pressure on the political establishment to come out quite clearly on its relationship with pharmaceutical companies that are in South Africa and and and, and continue those calls um, around the issues of the vaccine and its production, pricing and rollout 
uh, to make sure that the conversation starts now because if the conversation doesn't build up momentum now, it will be too late when the vaccine is already in the market because uh, the market logics would already have been dictated by those who are in the driving seat today before the vaccine has even uh, been complete in terms of um, its approval and, and, and research processes. The president has crafted this nice language of building social compacts. And so that means those social compacts must also include business. There mustn't be a hostile relationship or view towards uh, business. But I think we need much more honesty. It can't just be social compacts for the sake of, of, of social compacts. It has to be social compacts that are rooted on issues of social justice and making sure that the most vulnerable people have access to the vaccine because we've seen the spread of the virus in terms of the cluster outbreaks that are happening in factories, that are happening in supermarkets, because at the end of the day, those cluster outbreaks go back to the most disadvantaged communities. And in fact, one of the things we might also need to do as we talk about a vaccine is to say, in our society, who is most vulnerable and how should the rollout of the vaccine start? You know, this is, I think this conversation has kind of showed that um, the, the landscape for COVID vaccine is is complicated, both from a development point of view, but also from an access point of view. Um, but I think what is great is that everybody is so focused on it and it is such a priority to many different countries and many different stakeholders and people that I'm really hoping all of this collective brain power will lead to, to to real solutions. We can see it as an opportunity to really change what vaccine access looks like globally. And that that is one, I suppose, silver lining from all of this that, that we should really try and take advantage of. Preeti, any final thoughts? We have this false sense of scarcity when it comes to vaccines, as if it's an inevitability that some people won't get it. And it's not true. It's an inevitability of the system we have right now. And so we have to keep going. We have to keep bringing more and more of the public into this conversation to understand that there's a moment of opportunity right now where we can save more and more lives. And it's actually our responsibility to do that. And so if I were going to say anything in closing, I would advocate that more people become involved, join the movement, become activists and advocates for health equity. It's been such a pleasure to have you all on the show. Thank you for joining us on Access. I'm Fatima Hassan. Access is a four-part special series focusing on COVID-19 and access to testing, treatment and vaccines and the barriers that are in existence and will prevent equitable access for people in South Africa. It's been such a great pleasure to host this limited series. This is the final episode, so be sure to listen to episodes one, two, and three when you can. This episode was brought to you by the Health Justice Initiative and Volume. Goodbye.